Ecclesiastes 3 verses 1 to 22. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before. And God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Hi everyone, my name is Adam. It's great to have you join us today. Today we are in week three of our sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, it's been a long time since I've been to a theme park, but I remember the last time that I went on a roller coaster. At first, it was really calm and gentle and pleasant. We went up this slow, gradual incline. It was a nice view of the park and everything else that was around. But then when we get to the top, we paused for a moment before we went down this massive drop and it was on. We were going super fast, we went through loops, we went upside down and got to the end and stepped off and I was a little bit disoriented and dizzy. Now I've got to admit that this passage that we're looking at today, it's a bit like a roller coaster. It starts out really calmly and nicely and pleasantly. There's the beautiful poem about the seasons of life. We're told that God makes everything beautiful in its time. We're told that God has placed eternity in our hearts. 
But then we kind of drop into it and it's on. We read about the certainty of judgment, the reality of death, and we even kind of have a discussion in there about the fate of animals. And we could get to the end of it and we feel a little bit disoriented and dizzy. In fact, every Monday at our staff meeting, we read the passage that's going to be preached on that Sunday. And this week on Monday, after I read the passage, I turned to the team and I said, well, who wants to preach this week? And no one took me up on my offer. In fact, they just said, good luck, and then laughed. I mean, this passage is a bit disorienting, but it actually has a very important lesson for you and for me. It's actually making a very important point. Let me set it up this way. I recently did my first bit of Lego construction as a dad. My son Knox was given a box of Lego, so we sat down to do it together. I ripped open the box and I poured out the pieces and I was suddenly very glad that it came with pictures and instructions because on their own, the the pieces looked strange and it was not obvious how they all fitted together. And so I grabbed the instructions and I began to build with the help of Knox. Now, when I say help, I mean taking pieces when I'm not looking so I can't find them and end up frustrated. Now, as I was doing this, I came to realize that building Lego is a lot like life in this world. You see, like Lego, our lives are made up of so many different pieces. People, places, events, circumstances, all of these things come together to shape our lives. But there's also a key difference between building Lego and life in this world. See, when we build Lego, we're given pictures instructions. We're given the blueprint. But when it comes to life in this world, we're not given the master plan. We don't have the blueprint in front of us. We're not told how all of the different pieces fit together. Now, we're given enough to to start to build. I mean, we read in the Bible who God is, what God has done for us, what God will do for us in the future. But we're not told how all of the different pieces fit together. Only God sees how all of the pieces of life fit together. I mean, from our perspective, life is often confusing and frustrating. We don't know why this person gets cancer and this person doesn't. We don't know why disaster strikes here and not there. We don't know why some babies are born healthy and others are not. I mean, we don't know why so many things happen in this life. And the fact is, we don't have control over so much that takes place. This is the important lesson that we're going to learn in this chapter. Now, as I mentioned, we're in week three of a sermon series called Chasing the Wind. We're looking at the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, which is an exploration of life under the sun. The author of this book, he refers to himself as the teacher He's wrestling with questions like, what is the meaning of life? What's the point? Why does it matter? Now, what we saw last week was that the teacher went on a search for satisfaction. He looked for happiness in wisdom, in pleasure, and in work. And what he came to show us was that we cannot build our lives on these things. They are false trails, salt water, they're sinking sand. In other words, they are gifts from God. They're good things but they're not God. And the teacher showed us this 
so that we would know where to turn to find true happiness and lasting satisfaction. This week, the teacher has another important lesson that he wants us to learn. And the lesson is this, we are not in control. We are not in control. And he wants to tell us this, not to depress us or not to upset us, but to get us to turn to the God who is in control. Now I wonder, when in your life do you feel most in control? Maybe it's at work after you nail a presentation or you get a promotion. Maybe it's when you get a HD in that subject at uni or school. Maybe it's when the house is neat and tidy, when the lawn is mowed, when the kids are asleep. What about the opposite? When do you feel out of control? Maybe it's when you're sick or your kids are sick. Maybe it's when you're sacked or passed over for a promotion. When a friend or a loved one passes away. When the house is messy. When the lawn has weeds in it. When the sermon won't just come together. The reality is, no matter what we feel, no matter what life is like, whether good or bad, we have far less control than we think we do. Perhaps uh, something that will help us to feel our limitation is what Carl Sagan called the pale blue dot. Now, Carl Sagan was one of the most famous US scientists from the 80s and the 90s. And he once asked a, a spacecraft, Voyager 1, to take a photo of planet Earth from the fringes of the f- solar system. This was the result. Now, this photo came to be known as the pale blue dot. Because that pale blue dot that you might be able to see in the photo, that is the planet on which we live. Sagan famously went on to say, he says, look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering Thousands of confident religions, ideologies and economic doctrines. Every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust, suspended in a sunbeam. Now, how do you feel? (laughs) Large and in charge? Sagan concludes and he says, It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceit than this distant image of our tiny world. Now, the point that Carl Sagan is making, it is in many ways the same point that the teacher is making. But the teacher makes his point in a different way. He does not zoom out to show us uh, the smallness of our world. He zooms in to show us the seasons of life in our world and how little control we have over them. This is the point of the beautiful poem which opens up chapter 3. This is what the teacher says in verse 1. He says, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. Now the teacher then goes on to give us different examples of these seasons and activities that take place. 
In fact, he gives us 28 examples in 14 pairs of opposites. Birth and death, killing and healing, weeping and laughing, war and peace, love and hate. In fact, as Caroline pointed out in our staff meeting this week, he even gives us a COVID example in verse 5. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Now the point of this list is to be comprehensive. It's a summary of all the different seasons and activities of life. Now I know that a few of these activities in this list stand out. I mean, what does it mean that there's a time to kill or a time to hate? Is the Bible giving us permission to do these things? Well, the teacher is not saying that we should make a time in our calendar to kill. He's not saying we should schedule some hate into our lives. Now, the teacher is saying if we step back, if we look at life as a whole, all of these things are going to show up at one time or another. Even though we might not want it to happen, the reality is there'll be times when war is unavoidable. Even though it'd be nice if we all just got along all the times, the reality is there will be times of hatred. Around here, it happens every year at state of origin time. I mean, there is an ebb and there is a flow to life. There are seasons and rhythms. There are good times, bad times, and in-between times. There is a season and a time for everything. Now, on the surface, this poem is very beautiful. It's very comforting. This is why it's often read at funerals, whether Christian or not. This is why Pete Seeger turned it into a song, which was then adapted and made famous by the birds. Let me sing it for you. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. Now, I was under pressure to sing another song again this week after the Rolling Stones last week. I mean, these are very beautiful words, but there's a darker side to them. I mean, notice there are some pretty dark things in this list. I don't know about you, but I would like to avoid some of the things in this list. I mean, births are are, are lovely things, but, but death, I'm not so much of a fan. I like healing, but, but not killing so much, unless it's grubs in my lawn. I love peace, but I don't particularly want to go to war. I mean, I definitely prefer some of the seasons and activities in this list over and above other ones. Now, the problem is, I don't get to choose. I don't get to pick and choose which ones come my way and which ones don't. I don't get to decide where I'll be born or if I'll die. I don't get to schedule healing. Or I don't get to book in or or remove weeping from my calendar. I mean, these decisions are out of my hands. They happen to me, whether I like it or not. We have far less control over our lives than we think. And just in case we were tempted to think that we really are in control, the teacher gives us one final sucker punch. He returns to the question he asked back at the start of the book. In verse 9, he says this at the end of the poem, What do workers gain from their toil? In other words, after all of this life under the sun, after living through all of these seasons of life, all of the love and the hate, the war and the peace, the, the silence and the speaking, all of the planting, the embracing, the weeping, after all of these seasons of life, what's left over? What's the gain? What's the profit? And the implied answer is nothing, because you're dead. I mean, you experienced it all, all of these different seasons, you came and then you went. And when you add it all up, it adds up to nothing. You have no lasting gain, the teacher is saying. I mean, the fact is, if life under the sun is all there is, 
then death has the final say. Death is the full stop on the sentence of your life. Death cancels out everything. This is the dark side to this beautiful poem. The teacher is saying that we have very little control over our lives under the sun and ultimately our lives will end in the grave. Maybe it's not such a a beautiful poem after all, but it's important to realise that the teacher does not stop there. I mean, when this poem is read at funerals or when the birds sing it, they always stop at the end of the poem. They always stop at verse 8. But the teacher keeps going. And he goes on to interpret what he said. He goes on to begin to resolve the problem that he's raised. He adds in another perspective. And in the ensuing verses, he gives us both good news and bad news. Firstly, the good news. Now, if you're like me and you like to get the bad news first, well, too bad. Here's the good news. The teacher, after telling us that we have very little control over our lives, after telling us we all end up in a a box in the ground eventually, he, he tells us this. He says, but God is in control. He says, God is in control. This is what he says in verse 11. He says, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, the teacher is not saying that everything in life is beautiful. So much in life is not beautiful. It's terrible. It's tragic. But the teacher is saying all of the different seasons of life, they have their own specific plan and purpose in the mysterious plan and providence of God. I mean, all of the activities under the sun that look like loose threads to us, they are being woven together by the master weaver to form something beautiful and lasting. This is what the teacher says in verse 14. He says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. God is in control. God does it so that people will fear him. These verses point us to a God who is wise, a God who sees the beginning from the end, a God who's never caught by surprise, a God who makes everything beautiful in its time. We might not be in control, the teacher says, but God is. And this is very good news after all that we've read in the poem. But that's not all the teacher has to say. The teacher also gives us the bad news. And this is found in the rest of verse 11. This is what he goes on to say. He says, He has also set eternity in the human heart. No one, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I mean, here's the bad news. Though God is in control, we're not. Though God can see the big picture, we do not. For us, life under the sun is a bit like being in a maze. I mean, when you're in a maze, all you can see are the walls around you. But if you were able to see the maze from the air, from up above, you would know the way to go. Well, you see, God is outside of time. He sees the maze from above. Whereas we are inside of time. We can only see the walls around us. Now, of course, we would really like to access the view from above. After all, as he says, God has set eternity in the human heart. We know that we're made for more than life in this world. We want to know the meaning of life. We want to find purpose. We want answers to our questions. We want to solve the mysteries. And yet we are trapped in time and we have a limited perspective. We cannot, as the teacher says, fathom what God has done from beginning 
to end. And this is why the teacher goes on to say towards the end of the chapter that we are both like and unlike the animals. This is that, that kind of a little bit confusing section at the end where the teacher compares us to animals. And now what he says there, is he says that we are like the animals because like them, we are trapped in time. And like them, we will also die eventually. But he says that we are unlike the animals because we know that there's more. We have eternity in our hearts. I mean, your dog doesn't stare into the stars and, and just ponder the meaning of life. It mainly thinks about when it's going to get fed next. Your cat doesn't write songs and poems and, and, and write books. It, it just mainly struts around thinking about how superior it is to everyone else. This is the human predicament. We are made for eternity, but trapped in time. We long to understand, but we have a limited perspective. Now, you might be wondering, well, why doesn't God share the big picture with us? Why doesn't he show us all that he can see? Wouldn't that make life easier for us? Isn't God being a little bit unkind and unfair? Well, the answer is no. I mean, if, if we could see the end from the beginning, if we could see how a billion lives and a thousand generations and unspeakable sorrows and untold joys, how they were all being weaved together in, into something beautiful, we would be God. But we're not and this means if we want to live in God's world with wisdom, we must learn to grow small. We must learn to, like Jesus said, become like little children. We must learn to trust the God who sees things that we don't see, who knows things that we don't know. I mean, there's a reason that my kids listen to my wife and I. There's a reason that they have a bedtime and they can't just stay up late and, and keep playing like they would want to. There's a reason they get needles when they really would rather not. It's because my wife and I, we see the bigger picture. We know things that they can't even begin to understand. Now, how much more between God and us? And I guess that leads us to the question, well, why should we trust God? Why shouldn't we just try to take control of our lives and do what we want to do when we want to do it? The answer that the teacher tells us is that because God is perfectly just. There's this profound phrase that the teacher uses at the end of verse 15. He says, God will call the past to account. Literally, God will seek what has been chased away. I mean, all the events of human history have been chased away by time. They're lost to us, but not to God. God will dial back time and he will pull the past into the present and he will hold it all to account. This is what the teacher says again in verse 17. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. God will hold everything to account. Now this is both good news and bad news. It's good news because there has been so much wrong and so much injustice in human history. And it seems to us like so many people have gotten away with it. This is what the teacher observes as well. He says in verse 16, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. There's so many occasions where people seem to get away with it or the wrong person is, is held to justice. But in the end, 
the reality of God's judgment is good news because the right thing will be done. Every single person and action that has ever broken God's law, tarnished his world, damaged his image bearers, it will be held to account by God. But this is also where this becomes bad news for us. Because I'm sure that you, like me, you have things in your past that you would like to stay in the past. The idea that God will hold other people to account for their wrongs, that sounds good. But the idea that God will hold me to account for my wrongs, that suddenly doesn't sound so good anymore. So what do we do? Do we just kind of wait and hope that God's in a good mood on Judgment Day? Do we try to get busy and do enough good so that it will outweigh our bad? Well, the answer is neither of those things because God himself has provided a solution. Every single one of us are deserving of God's judgment, but the incredible life-changing message of the Bible is that God has sent a substitute, a saviour, to bear our judgment. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he comes from beyond the sun. He comes from heaven to earth. And he perfectly obeys and trusts his Father in his life. He's the only one who has never done anything wrong. And yet he is the one who goes to the cross. And on the cross, he dies in our place for our sin. He is judged in our place. The punishment that brought us peace was poured out on him You see, Jesus is condemned by God on the cross so that you and I never will be. This is the way the Bible puts it in Colossians chapter 2. It says, He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, our legal debt to God for breaking His law, for tarnishing His world, for damaging His image bearers. What's God done with this? This charge which stood against us and condemned us? He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. If your faith is in Jesus, then your every wrong deed, past, present and future, it has been put on him. It has been nailed to the cross. And this means that your judgment has already happened. It took place at the cross of Christ over 2,000 years ago. And this changes everything for you. It means that your past is paid for, your present is filled with purpose, and your future is filled with hope. This changes the way that we live our lives in this world. This changes the way that we live our lives through the seasons and the activities of life under the sun. And so as we close, I'd like to just point out a few lessons that we learn from this passage, a few lessons that we can apply to our lives. And the first is this. This passage teaches us that we should not be surprised when trouble comes. I mean, this passage very clearly tells us that there is a time and a season for everything under the sun, both good and bad, both beautiful and tragic. I mean, this is the reality of life in a fallen world. But because we know the God beyond the sun, we can also know that all of the seasons of life, they are in his wise, loving and powerful hands doesn't mean that the painful seasons will be easy. It doesn't even mean that that we have to enjoy them. It just means that we shouldn't be shocked by them and ultimately we will not be destroyed by them. God, not pain, not sin, not death, God will have the final say. Secondly, this passage teaches us 
that firstly, we should not be surprised when trouble comes in this life. Secondly, that ultimately, we're not in control. I mean, we never were and we never really will be. Our lives are in the hands of God. This is the confession that Job makes in the midst of his incredible suffering. He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, when we understand that we're not ultimately in control, we can begin to let go of the reins. We can begin to let go of our need to control everything and everyone in our lives. To control everything and everyone so that they are doing what we think they should do and they're in their right place. I mean, the fact is you cannot control everything and everyone. And if you try to do it, you will end up pushing people away. The sooner you realize you're not in control, the sooner you let go of all the different strings you're trying to pull, the sooner you stop trying to hold up the world, the sooner you can begin to live wisely in the world by trusting God and not using or manipulating people, but loving people. This is what drives so much of our worry and our anxiety, our desire to control everything. But we're not in control. It's an illusion. And this leads us to the third lesson of this passage, and that is God is in control. So trust Him. I mean, we're not God. We're not in control. It's not our job to run the world. It's His. It's our job to trust and to obey. Martin Luther said, It's none of our work to steer the course of providence or direct its motions, but to submit quietly to him who does. Now, of course, none of this means that, that we will like or understand everything that happens. We won't. I mean, we will continue to have questions about life and all that happens under the sun. Uh, don't forget, we are trapped in time. We have a limited perspective. But the good news is it won't always be this way. God has set eternity in the human heart and there is a day coming when if our faith is in Jesus, we will step into eternity. We will come home. And this is why we are called to travel lightly in this world, to not latch on to the things of this world for our meaning, for our purpose, for our satisfaction. We're not to look to them as our gods, but we're simply to enjoy them as gifts from God. We're to receive them as care packages from above. I mean, no one said this better than C.S. Lewis. He said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And he goes on to describe this longing for another world as the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. And this leads us to the final lesson we can learn from this passage. And that is, we can in the meantime, as we long for this other world, this life with God, we can in the meantime enjoy life. I mean, the events of life are beyond our control. The seasons of life are uncertain. So enjoy each and every day that you're given. Enjoy God's gifts and give thanks to Him. This is the teacher's conclusion in verses 12 to 13. He says, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I mean, we only have a short amount of time. We're a breath, a mist, a vapor. 
So make the most of it. Enjoy the sunshine, the coffee, the books, the music. Enjoy the chaos of little children. Enjoy conversations with friends and family. Enjoy the cold mornings, the hot days, the rainy nights. Turn off the TV and log off Facebook occasionally. I mean, don't waste your life. Enjoy each and every day as a gift from God. Enjoy what God has given to you. Use what God has given to you to serve Him and to serve others. I mean, we of all people, we have reason to enjoy life, to be thankful for the gifts, to persevere through the pain, to look ahead with hope because we know all that God has done for us in giving us His Son. We know how the story ends. We know that Jesus will return. He'll put an end to our frustration and our fear and our tears and our sorrow and our faith will be made sight. And so as we land, let me take us back to what Carl Sagan said. I mean, he looked at this pale blue dot and he concluded that we are small and insignificant. And he's right in a way. We are small, but we're small in a big way. Not because we're so great, but because God is so good. Because the God who made this universe, the God who made us, the God who we have rebelled against and run away from, this same God loves the pale blue dot. This God sent his son into the pale blue dot to rescue and to redeem us. And he is one day coming back to restore it all. And this means that through all of the different seasons and activities of life under the sun, we can enjoy them, we can give thanks for them, we can endure them, Because as we read in 1 Corinthians 13, for now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then, when Christ returns, we shall see face to face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are with us in this life under the sun through all of the different seasons and activities that we endure. We thank you for the reality that though we are not in control, you are. And so, though we don't always understand, Lord, we put our trust in you. Because what we do know is that you have sent your Son for us, that you have entered into our pale blue dot, and you have shown us your goodness, your grace, and your glory. And Lord, we want to use all the days of our lives that have been given to us to serve you, to serve others, to see your kingdom come on earth, on this pale blue dot, as in heaven. We give ourselves to this, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let me close our service with this blessing from Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.